Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Pharaoh is threatened by the Israelites. He tries to kill their sons, but God preserves them. No one can stand against his people and how he feels about civil disobedience. Exodus 1, Lesson 1 of the Exodus Study. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. On the last episode, we finished up the book of Genesis, and that wrapped up the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And if you remember, the family of Israel had to move to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And Joseph was governor over Egypt, taking care of the people during the famine. And so he moved his family there. And all of the Israelites are living in Egypt at this time. So we're going to pick up there this week. Unfortunately, again, I'm running behind and I do not have the written study complete. So bear with me if you're listening to this in real time. And hopefully I'll have the study done soon and up on the website for you to purchase if you want to use it to follow along. If you're listening to this later, then go ahead and check it out and see if I have it up. Now, we're going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 1, chapter 1 of Exodus. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So these are all of Jacob's sons and their families and they equal 70 people. So the nation of Israel began with the 70 people of Jacob's family. Now verse 6, And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of a war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of this land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in the dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. 
So this new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph or Jacob or any of Joseph's brothers. And the children of Israel have multiplied so greatly that they're very threatening to Pharaoh. And so he decides that he's going to try to suppress them in any way that he can. And so he submits them to hard labor. But it doesn't do any good. They continue to multiply and grow and spread throughout the land. So he continues to just make their work harder and harder, continuing to try to suppress them. Now, these store cities, Ramses and Pithom, archaeologists have found evidence of those cities there in Egypt with monuments and temples and buildings and all of the like. And then they've also found paintings that show the Egyptians having slaves with guards and then scribes also sitting there recording data, possibly quotas or drawing up plans or whatever. And so we do have evidence outside of the Bible that this is something that happened during this time period. So the Israelites are just growing stronger and the Egyptians are increasingly more threatened by them. So let's go ahead and read in verse 15 what they decide to do next. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on their birthing stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives have come. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them also. Now we're going to stop right there. We're not going to read the last verse of this chapter this week. We're going to read it with chapter two next week because it leads into it. So first of all, I want to talk about why he killed the baby boys instead of the baby girls, because it only seems logical that he would kill the girls because the girls are the ones that can continue to have babies and make their population multiply. So it seems like he would choose to kill the girls. But he chose to kill the boys because, remember, his fear was that the men would make war against him. And so he's killing the boys so that they can't grow up and do that. If he's going to try to kill these men one time or the other, it's much easier to kill them when they're babies than whenever they're soldiers fighting against him as adults. Now, something else I want you to notice is that we never learn the name of the Pharaoh that they're talking about. Pharaoh is not the man's name. It is just the title of the king of Egypt. And we never hear what his name is. But we do hear the name of these women. And that seems a little contradictory because normally the names of men are mentioned. Normally the names of women are not. But women are mentioned by name whenever they have some significance to the story or are very important women of the Bible. So the thought process here is that the names of these women were mentioned because Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, was honoring these women by mentioning their names because they were important to the story of Israel. 
And the names of these women meant beautiful one and splendid one. And so he wanted everyone to know that, that this beautiful one and this splendid one named Shifra and Pua saved the boys of Israel. By giving them names, they were being honored. But on the flip side, by not giving Pharaoh a name, he was being dishonored. It was as if he was saying, I'm not even going to do you the courtesy of giving you a name. You're just another king of Egypt. So what an honor for these women to have been called by name by Moses as women that have saved the children of Israel because they could have just been called two midwives, but he actually gave them a name. Now, the other thing that I want us to note, because this is not something that we do now, thankfully, is that this birthing stool that he talks about was two rocks set side by side that the women would sit on and then a midwife would support them on each side as they sat on these rocks and gave birth. That was their purpose. I'm so, so thankful we do not do that now. It does not sound comfortable or pleasant in any way, but that's what he was talking about. And so the women do not obey the authorities above them, but they fear the Lord. So they let these little boys live. And that's going to be the focus of the whole rest of this lesson. But I want to touch on a couple of other things before we get very far into that. Notice that because they did this, they were rewarded by the Lord by being given families of their own. And so just as we talked about with Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah, I want to point out again that God is the one that is in charge of conception. We can sleep with a person, but it does not make us able to have a child. Only God makes us able to have a child. And so, you know, Sarah was with her husband for over 25 years before she was able to have Isaac. It says that Isaac prayed for his wife for 20 years before she became pregnant with Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, it talks about how God was also in charge of their conception because Leah was the wife that was not loved and God allowed her to have children because she was not loved by her husband. So he was responsible for all of her pregnancies. And then Rachel, on the other hand, could not have any children because she did have the love of her husband. And so it took her many years to have children of her own. So here again, we see that God made these midwives have their own families as a reward for the things that they had done for the sons of Israel. So God is always the one that is in charge of conception. There are no unwanted pregnancies. God always wants every baby that he conceives within a woman every time. And on the flip side, any child that is not conceived is also by the will of God. That's hard for us at times because we want children, but we see here that that happened to these women also. Sarah, Rachel, and Rebecca, all three were not able to have children whenever they wanted them, but they did eventually have their own children in God's timing and not their own. So that may be the case with us, or he may have something different in store. So we just have to realize that he is the one that is in charge of that and not us. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is how God used these women to fulfill his promise to Abraham all those years ago. 
So I want to read you that now, just so we can remind ourselves what it is that the Lord promised to his people. This is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's fulfilling his promise to make them into a great nation and bless them. And then he's also fulfilling his promise to bless those that bless him because he's blessing these women because they feared the Lord and protected his nation. God is constantly proving that he can preserve and grow them as a nation and that no one can stand against his people. No matter what it is that the people of Egypt tried to do, they were not successful. They could not stand against the Lord or the Lord's people unless God allows it. So I want to give you a couple of verses that support that. This is in Deuteronomy 11.25. This is before they go into the promised land. And God is reminding them again how he is with them just before they go into the land. So it says, No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. So after all the years, God is continuing to fulfill his promise to the Israelites to bring them into this land and that no one will be able to stand against them. Now this is Isaiah fifty four seventeen, and it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So that's what was happening here, right? No weapon that the Egyptians formed against them was able to prosper. Now this is the last one, Romans eight thirty one, And it says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? So no matter if you are the Old Testament Israelites, if you are the Jews, or if you are God's church, if you are his people, his chosen ones, then nothing can stand against you. No one can go against God's will. What he chooses to happen with his people, no one, no evil can come against that. Satan is not able to prevail against the Lord and his people. Now, the rest of this time, I want us to focus on what these women did because they disobeyed the authority of their government. And then when they were questioned about it, they lied. So is that something that we are supposed to be able to do? Is there any circumstance where it is okay to disobey the government? Because there are many places that God's word tells us that we are supposed to obey the government. Let me read you some of those places. This is Romans 13, 1 through 7. This is Paul speaking to the church there in Rome. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. 
and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to not be afraid of the authorities? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from them. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, then be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So let's go through this verse by verse. It says that every single authority that is appointed is appointed by God. And so that's why we should be subject to them. No authority can exist apart from God. And it says, providing that that's the way it is, when we rebel against the authorities, we're actually rebelling against an ordinance that God has set in place. And then it goes on to talk about how they're there for the good people. They're there to protect the good people. So we should be glad that the authorities are there because if we do good things, then we have no worry for them. And if we do not do good things, then we should be worried about them because they are there to get rid of the evil within our communities and our states and our nations. Then it goes on to say that we shouldn't only obey them, though, because we're afraid of the punishment. We should obey them because it is the right thing to do. And it tells us to pay them taxes because they are God's ministers for us. They are God's ministers to get rid of the evil people that are among us. And they are God's ministers to take care of the people. And that's why they ask for our taxes so that they can care for all the people. And so we are supposed to give back to them what has been given to us so that they can care for the people. If it belongs to another person, then we should give it back to them, whatever they ask of us. So if the customs are set up by those people, then we give back to them by obeying those customs. If they are owed our fear, then we fear them. If they are owed our honor, then we honor them. That seems pretty clear, right? Obey the authorities. There's no exception in this rule right here. It doesn't say unless this or that. But we might have questions of unless, unless the authorities are clearly not ministers for God's good and we are not doing evil, but we are still being attacked by those that are supposed to only be executing justice on the evil. What if we're the good ones? We're doing good things, godly things, and we're being condemned by the governing authorities over us. What about that? All right, let's go on and read. This is First Peter two thirteen through 17. This is another verse talking about obeying the government. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or the governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of the evildoers and the praise of those who are good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 
So again, submit to every ordinance for the Lord's sake, because he has put them in place, whether it's a king or a governor. So no matter how high or low the authority is, we are to be subject to them because they are there for our protection. They are there for the praise of the ones that do good. We should be excited that they are there because they get rid of evil. This is God's will. When we do good, no one can say anything against us, but we are to be bond servants to God. We honor others. We love others. We fear God and we honor the king. So then the question comes again, what if in order to do good, we must disobey the authorities? What if we have to choose between honoring the king and fearing God? Is there always a way to do both? What if we can't be a bond servant to God? and also obey the authorities on this earth. A bondservant is a willing servant. So what if we can't willingly serve the Lord and serve our government? Then what? Let's listen to a few things that Jesus himself said about the government. This is Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And so they brought him a Daenerys. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And so he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So they're perceiving that Jesus has no regard for the person of men, right? It says, you have no regard for men's laws. That's what their assumption is. And so you obey God. You teach the truth of God. So you must not care about these laws that the men give. And Jesus said, no, I do care about the laws that the men give because they belong to them. And so whatever is given to us by the government then we give back to the government. So if they are the ones who print the money and give the money, then they're the ones that are due the money back. But if the things belong to God, then we give them back to God. That's how this works. The things that belong to the government, then the government has control over, and the things that belong to God, God has control over. And they realized they couldn't stump him, and so they left him alone. Now listen to what else Jesus says regarding people and the Lord. This is Matthew ten twenty eight. He says, But do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So we should fear God above all because God can not only kill our earthly bodies, but he can kill our soul too. God is to be feared more than men. So let's look at a couple of instances now before we draw a conclusion. Let's look at a couple of instances where people were in the position where they might have to disobey the authorities. This is Joshua 2, 
And this is where Moses has sent some spies into Jericho to see what the land is like. And they come into the house of the prostitute Rahab. And the men of the city become aware that these spies have come in and they go to Rahab and ask for her to bring the men out to her. But she has hidden the men from the authorities above her. And when they said, where are they? She said, well, they did come here, but I didn't know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly so that you might overtake them. That was verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 in Joshua. And then in verse 6 it says, But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on her roof. And so the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan. And then in verse 8 she came up to the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land that the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and the things that you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So she just now professed her faith in their God. Then she says, So I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will show me kindness to my father's house, and you will give me a true token and spare my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So when they come in to conquer the city, she wants to be saved because she saved their lives. And the men said in verse 14, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us this land that he will deal kindly and truly with you. So she did pretty much what these midwives did. She disobeyed her government and then she lied to them when she was asked about it. But it is because she feared the Lord that she did this because she believed that he was the true God. Then the question becomes, was it okay for her to lie to them? I personally never think that it's okay for a person to lie. Not saying that I've never lied, but I do not believe that it is of the Lord because he says that Satan is the father of lies. And so I think that all lies belong to Satan and that all truth belongs to the Lord and that he will take care of us if we tell the truth. And so I do not believe that it's okay that they lied. But the thing is, is that Rahab was not saved for her obedience to God. She was saved because of her faith in him. And that just shows us that our salvation is not from our works. It's not from, you know, telling the truth. We don't get saved because we tell the truth or do the things that the Lord says. And we do not get condemned because we do not do the things that the Lord says. She was not condemned for her lying because she was saved by her faith in him, by her belief. She professed her faith in the Lord in that instance that she talked to these men. And that is why she was saved. So I do not believe that it is okay for us to lie to our government. But she chose to disobey her government instead of going against God because she feared him. 
Now let's look at a couple of other instances. These other three are found in the book of Daniel. And the first one is Daniel himself in the very first chapter. Daniel and his people have been captured by the king of Babylon, and the king has instructed his officials to bring some of the children of Israel that are good-looking and gifted in all wisdom and possess knowledge and that are quick to understand and have ability to serve in the king's palace. He's supposed to go and get men like that, and so Daniel is one of those men that he goes and gets. I was reading from Daniel 1, 4. And when he gathered these men, it says in verse 5 that the king appointed them a daily provision of his delicacies and the wine. But in verse 8, it says Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies or the wine that the king drank. So he did not want to follow the rule that he had to eat that food that was given by the king. And so he approached one of the king's officials. At the end of verse 8, it says he requested of the officials that he might not defile himself. So he asked them, can I please not eat this food because this is against my God? And in verse 10, the official says, I fear the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking worse than the other men? That would endanger my life. And Daniel understood this. In verse 12, he said, Test us for 10 days and give us vegetables and water and let our appearance be examined with the other men that eat the king's delicacies and then deal with us as you see fit. So he said, Hey, I understand. I don't want you to get in trouble either. And I know you've been told to give us this food, but give us 10 days to eat the things that we want and see if we don't look just as good as the other men. And so at the end of the 10 days, verse 15 says, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men that ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And so the steward allowed them to continue. So Daniel wanted to disobey the authorities. But he also did it in the right way. He tried to make peace of both of their laws so that he was not disobeying his God, but the officials were also not doing something that would put them in jeopardy with the king. And so they looked just as good as the other men, so there would be no reason for the king to have problem with it. If we can appeal to the authorities or change the laws through the proper channels, then should we do that instead of just blatantly disregarding them? That's what Daniel did, right? Now look at Daniel 3, 10 through 18. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You may know this story. They are told to fall down and worship the golden image that has been made by the king Nebuchadnezzar and his people. And whoever does not fall down and worship, then they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar's people came to him and said, there are certain Jews that are not obeying this law to worship the golden image that you set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar brought these people before him and he said, is it true that you have not served my gods or worshiped the golden image that I've set up? He said, I'm going to give you a chance again. I'm going to blow the trumpet. And at that time, I want you to fall down and worship this image that I've made. But if you don't worship, then you'll be cast immediately into the fiery furnace. And this is what they said to the king. 
verses 16, 17, and 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image that you've set up. So they blatantly told him, we will not worship any God other than our God. And if our God chooses to save us, then he can save us. But if he doesn't, we're willing to face your punishment because we will not go against our God like that. And you know the end of the story, probably. God does save them from the fiery furnace. They do not get burned. Now, last one in Daniel. This is Daniel again. The people do not like Daniel because the king does like Daniel. And so they devised this scheme to get Daniel in trouble. They set up this law that says that if anyone prays to any God or man for 30 days except for the king, then they'll be cast into the den of lions. And Daniel knew this law, but he still went up into his upper room with the windows open towards Jerusalem and knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to God just as he had always done. So he knew the law said that he could not pray. But he did always pray. And so he went ahead and continued to do that, disobeying the authorities. And when they did throw him in the lion's den, God shut the mouths of the lions so that they could not harm him. Now, let me show you one instance in the New Testament where the disciples disobeyed the authorities. This is Acts 4, beginning in verse 18. And it says that the officials called and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered to them, this is verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, then you judge. For we can't speak anything except for what we've seen and heard. So they said, is it right for us to listen to what you tell us to do more than what God tells us to do? We have to tell the things that we know. So they were just up front with them. We can't stop talking about Jesus. We just can't. And so they warned them and let them go. And as soon as they let them go, they started talking about Jesus again. And so they arrested them the second time. And when they arrested them, an angel let them out of jail. And they went directly to the temple. As soon as they were let out of jail, they went directly to the temple and started teaching again. And when the officials didn't find them in prison, in verse 23, it says, We found the prison shut securely and the guards were standing outside. But when we opened it, we found no one inside. And so they asked where the men had gone. And in verse 25, it says, Look, the men that you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people again. And so obviously they're angry again, and they bring them before the council. And in verse 28, it says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter answers, and all the other apostles answer, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than man. So what is the conclusion? From all these verses that we've read, what is the conclusion? My personal conclusion from these verses that I read says that our general rule 
should be to submit to the authorities that God has appointed here on this earth, that we are to honor them because that honors God. When God's people are rebellious, that it damages his name. We should not be known as those that do not do what they're told. The entire Christian faith is built upon obedience to the Lord. And so if we look as though we're disobedient people, we're not going to bring other people to God. So it's always best to obey the government if that does not cause us to disobey God. But if by obeying the government, we are disobeying God, then we have to obey God. We have to obey God first. Always, always obey the Lord before we obey anyone else. That's what they just said. We must obey God rather than man. But if we have to do that, then should we not do it like Daniel? Should we not do it in a way that appeals to the authorities or goes through the proper channels of changing the laws? Here in America, we have that ability. We can go through our legislators to change laws. We can go to the people that are appointed to be our voice and we can say, hey, this is not a law that I agree with. And we can get petitions together. We can get the ability to vote on those laws. We can speak out. And so that should be our first recourse. Go to the people, ask, can we change this law? Can we do this in a different way where I do not disobey the Lord and you also do not get in trouble for allowing me to do that? Is there a way to make this work for everyone? But if we can't, If there is no way to change the law and we have to disobey in order to obey our Lord, then we need to do that. But I do believe, again, that we need to just be up front. Notice that Daniel did not hide what he was doing. He did it right there in the open. He opened his window where everyone could see him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said blatantly, We will not bow down to your people, but they didn't do it in a way that showed that they were rebellious and did not point people to God. As a matter of fact, they did point people to God in their rebellion because they said, we have to obey God instead of worshiping you. We must worship our Lord. And then they pointed other people to God by saying, and he can save us from your punishment if he so chooses. But if not, then we have to obey him. That's what that first Romans verse said. It said, if you disobey the authorities, then you will incur their wrath. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel all said, and these disciples, is that we are willing to incur your wrath in order to obey our God. Because what? If it means facing the judgment from either God or man, then we always want to face man's judgment, right? Because even if they would have come to their death, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if they would have died and God would not have saved them, then man can only kill their body. But God can kill both their body and soul by putting them in hell. So we always want to obey the Lord because we do not want to incur his wrath. He is to be feared and trusted. And here's the thing. He's also in charge of the government. So just as he did with all of these people that we saw, he can save them from the government if he so chooses. 
If we take matters in our own hands and just obey the government because we're afraid of them, then we don't leave any room for the Lord to save us. We're saving ourselves. And that's only a temporary salvation, providing that it's only our earthly salvation that we're incurring. So we need to instead trust God, the one that is in charge of our body and our soul, and not be afraid of the men. We do our best to honor the government. But I do want to say that we need to make sure that our punishment from the Lord would be greater than our punishment from these people. Because if it's just something that we don't want to do, and it's not something that God is going to be angry at us for doing, then we have to obey our authorities. Because we will face their wrath if we disobey them. And if God's wrath is not greater than that, that's what we're weighing. We're weighing who is going to be more angry with us? Who are we going to be disobeying more? And we never, ever, ever want to disobey the Lord more than we disobey the government or make God angrier at us than we make men. So that's really the bottom line of it, as far as I can tell. Now, next week, we're going to move into Exodus 2 and see what God's plan is now that the Pharaoh is continuing to try to suppress the Israelite people. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode because we will get introduced to Moses at this point. Now, I would really love to know what you think about civil disobedience. If there are other scriptures that I have not seen or thoughts that I may not have expressed, or if you just want to say, yeah, I agree with you. That's great. So leave me comments wherever you're listening. Email me if you want to. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. And so you can email me there. Also, it would help me out if you would leave me a five-star review if you're enjoying these podcasts and this study. And this week, I would just think about obeying the Lord above all things, but also obeying the authorities that are above you, unless that disobeys the Lord. Try to focus on that this week, and then we will move on to another topic next week. Thanks and have a good day.